You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Welcome back to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast, where we'll talk everything Pennsylvania outdoors. If you enjoy deer hunting, fishing, trapping, or just being outside, this podcast is for you. Our goal is to showcase the vast opportunity that the Pennsylvania Woodsman can experience. We hope this inspires you to get out and enjoy God's creation in the Keystone State. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've had a really good season so far. I know I've had a good season even though it's not the way I've really wanted it to go. So to catch you up to speed with what's happened with me, all the strategy things that we talked about this year, in a way, they paid off for me because I had the opportunity at one of the mature hitless buck that I was after. Unfortunately, the guy behind the bow could not make it happen. I was practicing with my bow moments before I went out to my stand at 30 yards. I shot a single pin sight my whole life, and for whatever reason that day, I got caught up in the moment and the busyness and trying to shoot a buck and a million things going through my mind, I never turned my sight back to 20 yards where I always keep it when I hunt. At the end of the evening, I had one of the mature deer come out, a nice seven-pointer, and he stopped in a field at 15 yards, and I shot, and I just clipped his back straps, and away he went, and I never, and I never got him. There's a bittersweet ending to all this for me. <clears throat> the deer was alive. He was fine. And he was up cruising for doe the next day, and the neighbor killed him. So while I was upset I didn't get him, I was glad that it ended away because nobody ever wants to wound an animal, and that's that's something that I don't take very lightly, but it ended well. I can't say that it was a bad hunt for me all all of archery season. Um, I was able to kill uh, a nice gobbler with my bow when I was on stand, and I had a really close encounter with a bear when I was hunting upstate. Unfortunately, I learned another hard lesson that I need to have my stand prepped a little bit faster. Uh, it was in the early afternoon, and I was setting my stand up to get ready for that afternoon evening hunt. And I just had the platform settled on my saddle that I was using, and my bow was tied to a rope on the ground. And in the process, um, I heard a stick crack behind me, and closing in very quickly was a really nice bear. Now, I've been fortunate and harvested some with my rifle, but I've never harvested one with my bow, which is high on my on my bucket list. And it just didn't happen. I couldn't pull the bow fast up. I you know, couldn't pull it up the tree fast enough, and I ended up having. Um, sticks in my way that made noise and the bear redirected and just out of my life. It was a really fun, exciting experience, but man, I was beating myself up over my equipment. So 
<clears throat> to recap our bear hunt, if you listened to last week's episode with Mark Lesher, um, it was a tough bear season. There was not a ton of food left. It seemed as though the white oak and the chestnut oak acorns that had dropped early had either been consumed or were starting to rot. And with it being such a warm fall, we had a lot of the leaf cover dropping late this year. And it seemed to cover up any evidence of food and and animals moving around. And uh, it was a really, really tough bear hunt. We were optimistic at the start. But as we started and, you know, 15 miles and multiple drives, uh, it was really, really tough. We did not see a single bear all of the first day. And the first two drives of the second day, we didn't see a single bear. And with everybody down in the dumps and thinking there was no chances, we did one last push. And the last push, uh, perseverance paid off and our group was able to harvest a, a beautiful bear she was 158 pounds field dressed, and uh, one of my best friends was able to harvest that. So, in a sense, you know, we did our homework. We had an idea of where bear were going to be, or or where we thought. Um, the last minute, some things changed, and I think it was right in that beginning span of November where uh, we started to see a shift in food, and it was in that time where we just didn't catch it, and it just made for a really tough bear hunt. But perseverance really, really paid off for us, and we were still able to be successful as a camp. So now this brings us to rifle season. It's a time that most people in Pennsylvania look forward to all year long. It's considered almost a holiday. Kids used to have off, and I think some schools still do, even though we have um, Saturday opener. I think there's still some schools that have Monday off and are giving kids an opportunity to get out in the woods because, you know, if, if they're anything like me when I was that age, I was taken off a day of school anyway. But I have to say, for me personally, Rifle season is not my favorite time to be in the woods, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The timing of rifle season makes it very tough to harvest a mature buck based on his natural movements the way I typically hunt with my bow. And as you've probably picked up on other episodes, I, I really want to try to shoot a deer three or four years old or older, depending on where I hunt. And I really like to do it with my bow. And since I've been unsuccessful in that in archery season, I'm shifting over here to rifle season. At the end of the rut, when those deer are worn down and tired out, uh, they're, they're going back to that early season pattern that we talked about. And that's food cover, food cover. And I think those movements can be even uh, more condensed just because of losing up to 30% of their body weight from chasing doe and and dealing with the rut another thing that makes it more tough is hunting pressure you know the first couple days that those guns are cracking it's a lot easier for those deer to hole up and not start to move until just after the cover of darkness any mature deer that has lived long enough knows that if they start to move when the guns get cracking they're going to get shot at and that is a really, really tough thing for a hunter, especially when your ways of hunting have traditionally been stand hunting and working on natural movements. And I think that's probably why I've put myself in such a hole in the past, because I've relied on one type of hunting to fill my tag. And that's probably why I haven't been very optimistic. Now, moving forward, um, I've changed my strategies a little bit. So the first thing I want to make sure is 
Food, cover, and water are still going to be my main focuses. It's still going to be my main focus on private land. It's still going to be my main focus on public land. But the fourth element that I don't think everybody talks about or it's implied but it's not talked about enough is security. And I think I'm going to rely on security and worrying about hunting pressure way more than I do in other parts of the season. The first part about pressure that I want to mention is the private piece of property that I hunt, I am going to try to capitalize on movement the first two days of the season. And what I mean by that is I'm still going to use those early season strategies of knowing where I've placed food and knowing where dominant bedding is. And I'm going to try to use bedding strategies in the morning and food strategies in the evening, assuming that the wind is right to go into those locations. And I'm going to play the wind and just try to stand hunt and catch that movement while it's still fresh. It's still fresh because it, you know, rifle season just started. Yes, the guns are cracking, but, um, not all those deer, the deer don't know that it's, it's gun season, so to speak, at least in the area I'm hunting, the area that I hunt, we don't have a lot of bear hunting pressure. So it's not like there was groups of guys making drives, making noise, shooting guns and starting to alert the local deer herd. I do believe that plays an impact in parts of the state. If you hunt there, I think it gives deer, um, you know, an early onset that pressure is here and hunting season is here. And it could maybe, uh, make that transition a little bit premature for you. Now, for me in the southern part of the state, I think I can get away with it the first two days, and that's going to be my goal in the first two days. Now, generally, after the first two days, I felt defeated. If I didn't have my buck tag filled and it was rifle season, I felt as though I was probably not going to fill my tag, and I had a really, really negative mindset. And what I've learned is it's just a new challenge, it's a new opportunity, and I need to change my mindset in order to be a successful hunter. And the way I've done that is I started to expand the areas that I go hunting, and I started to still hunt a little bit more and try to try to play the wind and try to harvest a deer with my rifle on the ground. Um, there's some people that are absolutely fantastic at that. Unfortunately for me, I'm not very, I'm a little bit clumsy when I walk in the woods. I try my hardest, but I am not as successful of a still hunter as most. But I think it's a way for me to improve my skills as a woodsman as I'm in the field, trying to play the wind, trying to walk slowly, walk quietly or sound like something that is not a human and put myself in a position where I'm seeing deer. Now, I'm still using those same strategies that I talked about or the the same principles of food, cover, water, and security, and I'm going to get into that a little bit, but that security part is probably where the deer are going to go, and I'm going to try to figure out how am I going to get there and be successful. So first, I'm going to start out by hunting in the areas that I've already done my homework. There's places that I've archery hunted. There's places that I've done off-season work of running cameras and doing a little bit of scouting. And I know these areas a little bit, and that's where I'm going to start. Again, I'm going to play the wind. The dominant wind, even though everybody says in the mountains the wind does all kinds of crazy things, don't get me wrong, it does. But if you stop and you pay attention, there is a little bit of a method to a madness. So if you look at the extended forecast, and if the first two days of the season are a constant northwest wind, you can bet that the dominant wind is going to come from the northwest. 
Now in mountain country, when you've got draws, dips, uh, points, multiple mountains, the wind is going to bounce off of that and it's going to swirl in those areas. And the time of day has a lot to play with the thermal. If it's early in the morning and late in the evening, you can bet it's going to probably cool down. It's going to slow down in wind direction, and you can bet that even though the dominant wind may be going one way, the thermal pull is going to go down, and you can use that to your advantage, or that might hurt you depending on the location that you're at. As the day warms up, I've found that I can stay towards the top of the ridges when I when I still hunt, I don't like to walk on the very tip top because then I become skylined and I found that I see less game walking on the tops of the ridges than I do just down over that I have cover. But when I find that I work towards the top, the dominant wind can get cheated and the thermal will pull up to the top of that shelf. And I can typically look down in onto benches, into hollows. Uh, parts of chop-offs where I can still see some deer and successfully still hunt. Now from here, all those previously scouted areas, here's my opportunity to go and hunt new areas that I've picked on the map or I've had in the back of my mind and just never set foot in or haven't set foot in nearly as much as I want. I am scouting it at the same time I'm hunting it and I can scout it for this year in rifle season or I can also scout it to say, hey, there was a lot of good rut activity. There was primary scrape areas found here. I can mark that, and I'm going to use that information for next year. And that's one thing that I think I've neglected in the past as it's an opportunity to be in the woods and learn for the future. Um, not having such a short-term uh, mindset of just trying to harvest a deer, but overall improve myself as a woodsman and learn the woods and utilize that information for the future. I think it's going to let me be successful for an extended period of time over just one initial time. So those areas that I pre-scouted, one of the reasons that I scouted them and I'm going to hunt them is because I know there's food there. At the location that I'm hunting, one of the main food sources this year that I've found, at least in early November, and I'm hoping that there's still some remaining, was beech nuts. I was surprised at how many beech nuts had been falling in pockets of ridges that had mature beech trees standing, um, and I, I found that there was a lot of game congregating. There was a lot of sign in those areas, and uh, the, the bear that we had harvested in archery season was loaded full of beech nuts in its stomach. So having that in mind, I'm probably not going to still hunt on those beech flats right away first thing in the morning because I'm still expecting a lot of those deer to be in those beach flats or just leaving those beach flats to come back to bed. So my goal is to be on the backside and stop and stand hunt for a, a small portion of the morning and see if I can catch anything coming out of those beach flats. And then that'll transition me to go and still hunt in those transition areas, uh, playing the wind and hopefully finding a deer uh, a buck up on its feet or, or catch him in his bed before I bust him because uh, Lord knows I'm, I'm not the best still hunter, but I'm going to try to catch him and see him before he sees me. 
Another thing is, you know, listen to the other people in the area that maybe hunt out of a cabin or just neighbors or stuff like that. Uh, one of the pieces of information that I was led on by one of our bear hunters in our camp is there is um, some isolated oak trees, some some red oaks that were dropping acorns, which really surprised me because a lot of the places that I went um, did not have acorns yet. And if that's going to be the case, I might have to transition where I hunt and scout a little bit different. But uh, those those acorns are obviously going to be a big deal. I mean, that's like deer candy right there. Um, I'm not going to rely on that heavily. But the third food source and one of the most consistent food sources for me has been chop-offs at my cabin. Those chop-offs are consistent cover and food source because there's a lot of high quality browse depending on the age of those cuts and that's where I spend a lot of of my time. Now the first thing, the age of the cut is big. I've found that when the cut gets somewhere around five to seven years old I start to see it used as cover but I don't see the level of use quite the same as I do with a cut that's somewhere between two to five years old. Those cuts in that range, uh, you've got that first flush of early successional growth, and I've seen the most deer browsing in those areas and bedding and, and just overall deer congregation. So I usually try to find myself in a stand location to the edge or still hunting the backside. Now, the positioning of where I walk is very important. I learned this the hard way. Most of the time I've found that deer like to really bed just on the edge or just in the interior of the cuts and not necessarily in the middle of the cuts. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in my last portion of my rifle season strategy, but uh, right now when I'm still hunting and I'm hunting on my own, I really make sure that if I get into a bowl where maybe I have chop-offs on each side and there's just a, a narrow bowl that didn't get cut, I really want to make sure that I take my time and thoroughly glass those edges or at least sit back and wait to see if I can catch something moving because I've found that if the wind is dominant in one direction, deer will like to bed, at least buck do, um, buck will bed with the wind at their back coming from the chop off and they'll look into the open woods and they've got everything covered because they can cover it with their eyes and they can cover their backside with the nose. Um, I think doe groups do this sometimes, but it seems that doe groups kind of have that uh, group mentality where they're all kind of positioned, they're bedding one way or the other, and they can cover everybody with their eyes and you know, some of them can cover their nose depending on the wind direction, but that placement of where the uh, a buck is bedding, it can be a little bit different in that respect. Trying to cover because he's thinking for himself solely, and I've I've seen that to be the case um, most of the time. Now, since I'm going to be hunting mid-first week of rifle season on the public land, I can already assume that the first push of hunters has come through in the first two days of the first weekend and alerted the local deer herd that, hey, it's deer season. There's a lot of human scent in areas that haven't been here for a while, and there's guns cracking, we're getting shot at, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing people. All those things are going to put those deer onto alert, and I think that is going to push them into their security zones, wherever those may be. Now, I look at it that I need to find 
where are the deer going first, of course, but where are they pushing them that people won't go? You know, where where are the local hunters not willing to go? That's where I need to be because there's probably going to be deer there. I used this in uh, my 2019 buck. I used this strategy. There were a lot of people coming off the roads in the first 200 yards and hunting on those edges of the chop-offs, and I really noticed that a lot of the deer had been pushed down in, and I went around a lot of that hunting pressure, got on the backside of the chop-off, and hunted on a ridge uh, that was an open ridge. It was a, it was a hollow, but there was a transition in the bottom of the hollow of some thicker cover. Um, there was water there, and there was, there was just an edge transition on the backside of that chop-off, it was ugly terrain. Nobody wanted to go there. And that's where I found a mature deer and was successful in harvesting. And I continue to use that strategy time and time again, because it's easy when the road is on the top of the mountain for everybody to go to the edge and look down in. And what's happening is even though those tops are attractive locations, that pressure quickly uh, drops the use, the daylight use on those tops. So I can already look at the road and there's areas that I know I can X off as places that I want to spend time when I'm still hunting. But I will look at it and say there's probably a very, very low chance that this hollow and this hollow, if I access from the bottom side or if I loop around and drop in, I can still hunt with the wind in my favor and... I can be in deer because they've got chase, they've got hold up in these locations, and they're probably giving me an opportunity to find isolated pockets. So I know I didn't spend a ton of time on still hunting. Uh, It's something that I'm a steward of and I'm learning. Uh, That's been my strategy of how I go about it. This next part I want to talk about is something I've had a little bit more experience in and a little bit more success doing. And... It's something I've grown to have a little bit more of appreciation for than I used to, and that's at the end of the week, um, hunting with a group and making little pushes. At our cabin, we have buck season, we have bear season open the entire first week, and we also have DMAP tags in our area. So it gives a lot of opportunity for us to make some pushes in some of these areas and uh, have somebody at least get the opportunity to harvest something in our drives. Now I'll use all of the information that I've acquired previously from talking to people in camp to still hunting and my trail cameras and all that homework and all the still hunting that I've done previously. And we're going to figure out how to systematically or, uh, drive those locations with family and my friends. Now, the, the big thing with making these pushes is I'm not just going to push it any old way. I don't like pushing it the same way all the time and, and that because I don't think you, I think you can put yourself um, into a neck hold, so to speak, that you're not expanding and learning from that. But I also think that the conditions don't always hold right to make the drive the same way every time. Um, first, I stress the same thing to have the wind direction or the dominant wind direction in the favor for our standards. The drivers, our pushers, need to have the wind at the back of their neck, at least for a duration of the time, because from there, all the deer know something's coming. It gives them the opportunity to get up on their feet, 
and sneak out to all the escape routes that we've covered. I don't like to yell and holler and scream because that is giving deer way ahead of time knowledge that you are coming, something is happening, and I've seen time and time again, as you approach their bedding location, they will hole up and wait until you get past them and sneak out the back. Instead, I'd rather catch them off guard or have them smell me and start to linger out and have you know have a good opportunity that way. Uh, any noise that drivers make, uh, it's just to keep in line. You know, a little hoot, a break of a stick. Um, I like using crow calls just so that the people that are walking with you can tell that they're in line. Nobody's getting too far ahead. Um, but they're, they're still hunters that are just trying to nudge to those, those areas of escape. I want to make sure that we have enough drivers. One of the things I've noticed too often is you'll, you'll you know, have yourself spread too far and drive too big of an area because you don't have enough guys. And that's a great way to have stuff slip out the back. I like if my drivers can see each other um, at least every now and then and try to cover those areas. I'm assuming if you can see each other, you're fairly close together, that nothing should get between you depending on the terrain and topography. But I'm also assuming that if you're that close together and the wind is in your favor, um, there's a better chance that you're going to have the deer doing what you want them to do, so to speak, rather than uh, going back into you. There is one exception to that that I have found, and that's a buck. I think buck are hard to chase, at least a good buck, hard to chase and get out of a drive. And what I've noticed is mature buck will go one of two ways when they are nudged. They will go with the wind at their back, or they will go with the wind at their nose. And the crosswind of a buck, it just doesn't seem like they move across the wind and, and use that to their advantage. So I usually try to have somebody looking at both of those. You know, if they are, if somebody's on the, the downwind side and he's l- trying to sneak out ahead, obviously, you know, they're, they're not going to see that person because they're down or not going to smell that person. I'm sorry, because they're downwind. Um, but if I have somebody on the upwind side too, you know, maybe they can catch something just to the side of them if they're coming into the wind, if they cut out the backside of the drive, um, or they, uh, they'll smell that stander and redirect to another stander. Um, you know, you try to cover all aspects, but um, I want to make sure that all my exits are covered. The, I love on the mountains to have somebody at the top of the point. Um, and the bottom of the point, depending on the topography. Same with uh, the draws, the hollows. Uh, those are great escape patterns. If you drive across, many times, uh, if they're if deer are running around, they're not like bear, where sometimes they'll go into the hollow. A lot of the time, they'll cut up or cut down at the draw. So I like to have those escape patterns covered when you make these pushes. Now back to the chop offs. Uh, I learned this the hard way. The deer are right on those edges when you get into that really thick cover. And I I learned this because when we drove through the middle of the chop-offs, some of those chop-offs were so thick and nasty with briars, there was no sign of deer. There There was minimal sign of browsing in the interior, only on the edges of the logging roads. 
Uh, there wasn't deer scat. There wasn't beds. And as we pushed through those drives and we're, we weren't getting anything out, I had to scratch my head and wonder why. And as we got to the edge where you started to get to that transition zone, that continuous edge, then you found beds, you found droppings, you found buck rubs, you found scrapes, you found that concentrated sign. And I messed up because that's where I had a lot of my watch. I would put my, my standers close to that edge trying to push deer out of the chop off. And I learned I was chasing the deer before the drive even started with that access point. To kind of draw the scenario up, there's one drive that I did last year with our group actually was a drive that we messed up in my mind and yet we were successful and harvested a really nice buck the standers went down a down a ridge into a chop off and and it was on a logging road now the logging road went down into this bowl and the road cut to the right on a bench and it was the last bench before it dipped into a deep hollow and the entire uh top side so as you're going in this road down in you cut to the right everything that they are in is in the interior of a chop off and they lined this logging road up and backed it up into a hollow as you went to the right there was a a nice little cut there was a creek bottom that was not chopped it was open hardwoods uh, beech birch maple And it formed an edge along that hollow from the chop off and that transition. And then on the opposite side of that hollow is another chop off. And what we ended up doing, I wanted to push the the chop off across. But what we ended up doing was we surrounded this area because the drivers went down the open hollow and ended up meeting with the last stander. But we had everything surrounded, and in getting the drive started, the wind of one of this the I'm sorry one of the drivers went into the chop off, and there was a buck bedded on the edge. He bound through the chop off and went right to one of the standers, and it was successful. So it was kind of a a messed up drive, but I really really learned that where those deer were bedding is on the edge. So now what I'm doing is looking at how can we get into the interior of the chop off via logging roads, via um, skitter trails, stuff like that, and push from there through those open pockets where a lot of that congregation is. And then what I can do is if they run across, I can push them to a line of standards in that next security cover. Or if it's in a draw like this, in this nice bowl where those deer had had congregated most on that previous drive I just described, I can hopefully get somebody at the bottom of that draw and the top of that draw. So if they cut out the sides, I've got somebody positioned to take cover of that. I hope that makes sense. It can be very difficult to describe drives and wood scenarios um, in a situation like a podcast, but I think it's really, really important that you, you understand where those deer are positioning themselves. And I think you can really take a lot from that for still hunting or group hunting. We do have some success sometimes in the older cuts, those cuts that are 5, 7, 10 years old. Sometimes we'll drive through those. Uh, you'll find that there's old pockets that didn't get cut or maybe there's a small swamp and those will be edges where deer will bed. 
and we've we've pushed some deer out of those cuts just because uh, again it becomes mostly security there's not as much food and quality browse in those older cuts that have grown and the canopy is you know 20 to 30 feet of uh, birch trees and it's shading out that that ground and that good quality food but it's still a place where some deer will hold up when they're getting chased and knocked around um, so it's it's worth it but it's not my first go-to location to make a drive so all in all my biggest thing is play the wind wind is the most important thing but play it in the areas where you have food where food establishes the line of movement where those deer are. Food is everything, even though it might be a nighttime food source. That's going to at least give you a reference point to say, this point, this hollow, this side hill, this whatever, that is on the backside of where I think a lot of the local pressure is going, that's probably where those deer are going to be, and that's where I need to figure out how to hunt them. And I'm going to try to do it in two ways. I'm hoping that I can be successful and harvest a buck before the group hunt and use that information of still hunting to try to make some good drives and share it with people. Now, is this my favorite way of hunting? No, it really isn't. But I I took it upon myself to say, um, in a goofy way, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, Rifle hunting is just, it's not my style. It's not my favorite thing to do. But one thing that can easily be overlooked. This is an opportunity to collaborate with other hunters. Hunt an entire area and at the end of a push, discuss what did you see? Why did you see it? Where did you see it? How can we do it better? Do you think that would be an area that had signed earlier that we could hunt next year at that time? It's a whole new perspective. It's also camaraderie. There's something about a camp atmosphere. If you've never experienced a hunting camp atmosphere with a group of hunters that just want to go out and have a good time, uh, it's something special. Being part of a hunting heritage at my cabin where I know my dad hunted, my uncles hunted, my grandfather's hunted, and his brothers hunted, and have all that history and learning the woods where they hunted and then adding stories to those areas from 50 years ago is something special to me and it's something that I've come to appreciate more than I once did. As much as I stress that I want to shoot a mature buck, it really opens my eyes that hunting is not all about that. It's not just about killing a big buck. Enjoying creation, being a woodsman, being with family, being with friends, helping others in their hunt because a lot of the people um, that go hunting in rifle season, um, or anybody, you know, there, there's people that go hunting this time of year that maybe aren't as crazy about it as you and I, but they still enjoy it. And spending that and sharing that, maybe you're able to teach them something that they didn't even know. You know, they're, they're, to those that uh, go out to that same historic tree stand, to that same historic bench or knob that they sit and look down into, um, you know, there's not a thing wrong with that. Is it part of my strategy? No, but who cares? It doesn't matter what my strategy is. But maybe something that you do that leads you to be successful will help them be successful in the future. And at the end of the day, whether you're a bow hunter, whether you're a rifle hunter, whether you're a muzzleloader hunter, or whether you're just a small game hunter or wildlife enthusiast, we've got to all stick together. 
stay hunters and don't fight with each other. Whatever your strategy is or whatever your way of hunting is, we're all hunting and we don't want to fight against each other because we already have the biggest anti-hunting group in the world right here in our country trying to stop us from doing this wonderful, wonderful thing. One of the things that I think I appreciate, and I'm going to end it with this, is this is a time of year where I spend more time with my dad hunting. Now, my dad is not as much of a gung-ho hunter as I am. He loves to go to camp. He, he does enjoy going hunting. This is the first year that he actually went archery hunting, and I went to camp with him, and I had a blast with my dad. You know, we shared some great memories, some time together. Um, we had some good hunts together, and I'm going to go back up to camp with my dad and some of the, the fellows at camp and just make more great memories. It gives me an opportunity to share time with him that I don't, I haven't in the past because I was busy doing my own thing hunting uh, while he was busy doing his own thing. You know, in the fall, maybe he wants to go golfing or, or such. But take that into consideration in rifle season. You're with family, you're with friends. It's going to give you opportunity to enjoy time with them. Maybe you've got a grandfather that hasn't been out hunting for a long time and really needs something to cheer him up in this past two years when we've been dealing with COVID. Maybe your kids have been holed up and they've been on video games and they've been doing all kinds of crazy stuff that they just need to get out and enjoy some fresh air. Um, try to take, if, if you're gung-ho crazy like me about trying to shoot a good mature buck, Take this time to sit back and think about what it's really all about and introduce some kids, introduce family, um, or share more memories with those people. I think you're really going to have a greater appreciation. And you know what? If I don't get to harvest one of my goals in a, a mature buck, I know there's no doubt I'm going to learn a lot about my hunting season and everything that transpired there. So I thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you took something away from it. Good luck and safe hunting this year. 